Well, good morning. How is everyone? It's great to see uh, all of you here. I just want to thank everyone and anyone who was involved in inviting me here this morning. Um, My wife, Melissa, and I are relatively new to California. Uh, We relocated here from Atlanta um, a little over two years ago um, at the uh, personal invitation of Phil Johnson, my boss at Grace to You, who was here last week. And whoever was responsible for having me follow Phil Johnson in this pulpit, (laughs) I want to see you after service. Um, First time in Thousand Oaks. Um, Melissa and I have not, because of the COVID restrictions and whatnot, haven't really been able to get out and discover California at all. Uh, We live in Valencia, so we live in Santa Clarita. uh, So this is our first time uh, in this area of L.A. Um, Don't know how many of you have ever been to Atlanta, but what Metro L.A. is about, what, 30, 35 million people? Yeah, so Atlanta's closer to 8 million uh, metro population. But one of the interesting things, if not ironic, is when we did, uh, when we relocated uh, to L.A., one of the things that we did not have to get used to was the traffic. <laughs> I, 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 from day one, I was comfortable driving on the five because <laughs> that's exactly how it is driving in Atlanta. Traffic is horrible uh, in Atlanta, but we're so blessed and privileged to be here. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, as was mentioned earlier, um, in my day job, I'm dean of social media at Grace to You. In case any of you are wondering, what does a dean of social media do? Um, first of all, Phil Johnson gave me that job title, so I didn't pick that for myself. <laughs> but um, I'm responsible for all the social media strategy for Grace to You, which is the uh, media ministry for, of John MacArthur. Um, so any of you who follow us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, um, YouTube, Um, I'm responsible for making sure that our content is successfully available uh, to everyone around the world who follows us uh, on those platforms so that you can get to John's uh, teaching materials, his sermons, and whatnot. So that's my primary responsibility. But one of the uh, beauties of being at Grace to You is they've given me freedom to be able to do things like this. Um, uh, Prior to coming here to California, I had my own uh, ministry. It's called Just Thinking. Uh, I had a blog that I was doing. (laughs) Thank you. So uh, I had a blog that I was writing for, but then in 2017, um, I partnered with my, my good brother who I love to death, Virgil Walker. We launched the Just Thinking podcast. For those of you who are not familiar with the Just Thinking podcast, uh, Phil Johnson has called it the most influential long-form podcast on the planet. Uh, we've been ranked number one on Apple iTunes multiple times. We've kind of garnered a reputation for dealing biblically and expositionally with a lot of the sociocultural issues that are going on in the world today, especially those that are coming against the church. So we, um, Virgil and I are theologians first, but people have come to trust us to deal with biblically with issues such as critical race theory and intersectionality and uh, the whole, uh, a word that I hate to use, the whole race issue, uh, but that's a topic for another day. But if you're not familiar with us, uh, we've uh, been in existence for about four years. We have had over four million of our episodes downloaded uh, to date. Uh, So if you're a fan of podcasts, I encourage you to subscribe to the Just Thinking podcast. You can just launch your podcast app on your phone and just search for Just Thinking. Uh, Let me advise you, though, Just Thinking is a long-form expositional podcast, okay? So some of our episodes, because we exposit the topics through what the Word of God says, some of our episodes are two and a half, three and a half hours long, so you may want to break those up uh, if you can, which is most people do. They break it up over several days. 
Uh, but I encourage you to, to subscribe and, uh, and check us out. Um, before I go into my message today, I do want to repeat the, uh, the passage that Jim read earlier. It's going to read a little bit differently from the, 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 the translation that Jim read from. Uh, my preferred translation is the New American Standard, so that's what I'll be reading from this morning. But Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. If you'll join me in prayer, please. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to hear from you through your Holy Spirit this morning. It's in Christ's name I ask this. Amen. Would you play a little game with me for a couple seconds? Think to yourself, no audible responses, no show of hands or anything like that at all. Just think to yourself, if you had to name the three worst sins that you could ever commit, the three absolute worst sins that you could ever commit, just think to yourself, what would those top three sins be? Just get those three sins in your head. All right, got them? Got your top three sins. Now, again, no responses whatsoever, but just, I want to ask you, was discontentment one of those three? Was being discontent one of those three? It was... 36 years ago in 1985, perhaps when some of you weren't even born, the band Prince and the Revolution released the critically acclaimed album titled Around the World in a Day. The album included two top top 10 songs. Raspberry Beret was one song. That song peaked at number two in the United States, and then another top 10 song from that album was a t- song titled Pop Life, which reached number seven. Now, though the somewhat playful and whimsical Raspberry Beret is the album's most successful track, the song Pop Life is my personal favorite because its lyrics pose some questions which I believe are worthy of serious consideration for us as Christians here in the 21st century. Please listen carefully as I read, not sing, those lyrics. What's the matter with your life? Is the economy bringing you down? Is the mailman messing you around? Did he put your million-dollar check in someone else's box? Tell me, what's the matter with your world? Was it a boy when you wanted a girl? Don't you know straight hair ain't got no curl? Life, it ain't real funky unless it's got that pop. Dig it. Pop life. Everybody needs a thrill. Pop life. We all got a space to fill. Pop life. Everybody wants to be on top. But life, it ain't real funky unless it's got that pop. Now, You may find it hard to believe by my appearance, but I used to be a DJ back in the day. I DJed house parties back in the late 80s and 90s. Why y'all laughing? (laughs) 
Pop Life was one of my go-to tracks to try to get the party started. But apart from being a popular dance track, fundamentally, Pop Life is a song about contentment, or perhaps better, discontentment with the state of one's life in the world. Pop Life confronts us about the things we long for in this life, and our response is when those desires and expectations, for whatever reason, go unmet, and the potential pitfalls of such an attitude if we don't respond properly, meaning biblically. As author Stephen Arterburn writes in his book titled Feeding Your Appetites, quote, when we settle for unhealthy and unfulfilling imitations of what we really desire, our appetites can begin to rage out of control and start controlling us. We will turn to sources of satisfaction that will eventually turn on us and force us either to give up altogether or to overindulge until the bitter end, unquote. Now, sadly, many Christians today are discontent with their life. For myriad reasons, they have become emotionally, spiritually, and in many instances, mentally and psychologically jaundiced from a sense that their life ain't got that pop. That something, that person, that possession, that experience, which they're convinced will provide them with the level of fulfillment, significance, happiness, and satisfaction that they've been longing for, but have yet to realize. One biblical example of this, among others, is the account we have of a man named Samson in chapter 14 of the book of Judges. I'll read Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our own people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. That's Judges 14, verses 1 through 4. Now, it's both interesting and important to note in that passage in Judges 14, the significance of that little three-letter word, saw. In the Hebrew, the word saw is not speaking merely of Samson's perceiving or observing the woman in Timnah visually with his physical eyes. The word saw there has to do with Samson allowing what he saw with his physical eyes to develop into a sinful desire and craving in his mind and heart. In fact, it is that same Hebrew word in Judges 14 that is found in the account of Eve and Adam eating of the forbidden tree in Genesis 3. I'll read Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's verse 6, though. When the woman saw, that is to say, when she perceived in her heart, when she understood with her mind, when she considered with intention, when she deliberated within herself, 
that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So that little three-letter word saw is incredibly significant. The great French reformer John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, in his commentary on that passage in Genesis 3, says this, quote, This impure look of Eve, infected with the poison of concupiscence, was both the messenger and the witness of an impure heart. She could previously behold the tree with such sincerity that no desire to eat of it affected her mind. For the faith she had in the word of God was the best guardian of her heart and of all her senses. But now, after the heart had declined from faith and from obedience to the word, she corrupted both herself and all her senses and depravity was diffused through all parts of her soul as well as her body. It is therefore a sign of impious defection that the woman now judges the tree to be good for food, eagerly delights herself in beholding it, and persuades herself that it is desirable for the sake of acquiring wisdom, whereas before she had passed it a hundred times. She had passed by it a hundred times with an unmoved and tranquil look. For now, having shaken off the bridle, her mind wanders dissolutely and intemperately, drawing the body with it to the same licentiousness, unquote. I love what my brother here said earlier about the mind, the mind. Samson implored his father and mother to get that woman in Timnah for him as a wife because she looked good to him. She looked good to him. Now it's in light of that kind of stubborn and unyielding attitude that I want to ask you, my dear brother and sister this morning, a very personal question. As you sit there under the sound of my voice right now, is there something of this world that looks good to you? Is there something of this world that looks good to you Something that you know in your heart is completely outside the will of God for your life, but that you are nonetheless contemplating, pursuing, because it will make you more content with your life than as it stands right now. Having undoubtedly been taught by his parents in accordance with their obligation to do so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, Samson knew very well. He knew very well the prohibition God had instituted against intermarrying with the Philistines. It's a prohibition that is unambiguously laid out by God himself in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. 
Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. You see, Samson's problem was that his life lacked that pop. Samson wanted that one thing that was missing, that one thing he didn't have that would satiate and gratify the desires of his flesh, regardless of what it cost. He wanted that pop. So bad, he wanted it so badly that he pursued it even against the urgings and pleadings of his godly parents, not to mention to the uh, uh, opposition of the revealed will of God as his will is set forth in the scriptures. Samson knew this. In the end, though, when all was said and done, Samson ended up with more pop than he bargained for. All you have to do is read how the story ends in Judges chapter 16. As I reflect on how things ended up for Samson, I'm reminded of an old southern gospel song written by the cathedral quartet from back in the early 1990s. It's a song called Sin Will Take You Farther. And the chorus goes as follows. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. So that's what Samson didn't realize. He wanted that pop. It is the pursuit of the pop life, which not unlike Samson has today led many professing Christians astray. And their misguided zeal to appease, to mollify, and to assuage their perception that their life ain't real funky. They often find themselves in compromising situations and circumstances that they thought they would never experience. And conversely, reaping consequences that they thought they would never encounter. But such is the subtle allure of discontentment. Discontentment is not a very egregious or overt sin. And what I mean by that is that if you're not diligent to watch over your heart, as we're commanded to do in Proverbs 4.23, discontentment is the kind of sin that has a way of sneaking up on you. In contrast to other more overt sins that are obvious to us from the outside, such as adultery or murder, for example, attitudinal sins like discontentment are relatively easy to disguise from ourselves and also from others. Discontentment is the kind of sin about which the Puritan theologian Thomas Brooks writes in his book titled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices and that Satan, Brooks says, presents the bait but hides the hook. Do you get his point? That's how discontentment works. It's one of those sins where Satan presents the bait but hides the hook. Anyone in here been fishing? That's how you catch the fish, because they can't see the hook. Brooks's words of warning bring to my mind the words of Luke 4.13. Luke chapter 4, verse 13, and the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. After Jesus had resisted those three temptations, the text reads that when the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until a more opportune time, until a more opportune time. Now, some of you may be asking yourself right now, well, Darrell, what does the devil have to do with any of this? Well, he has to do with it because the battlefield of Satan is the mind. 
just like Brother Kwan said earlier, the mind. R.C. Sproul has said that the word of God gets into the heart through the mind. The battlefield of Satan is the mind. Satan is an opportunist, and it is through our mind, through our thoughts, that he seeks to take advantage of us. In his classic book titled Holiness, subtitled Its Nature, Hindrances, Difficulties, and Roots, the 19th century English evangelist John Charles Ryle, more commonly known to us as J.C. Ryle, writes this of Satan. He says, quote, that old enemy of mankind is not dead. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, he has been going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. That's Job 1.7. And striving to compass one great end, the ruin of man's soul. Never slumbering and never sleeping, he is always going about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. Unquote. It is in the mind that discontentment takes root. Listen, every sin, okay, every sin begins with an attitude before it is carried out as an act. Every single sin begins with an attitude first. It begins up here. Prior to carrying out the actual physical act of murdering his brother Abel, God asked Cain, why are you angry? So as far as God was concerned, Cain had already murdered his brother in his mind before he'd actually taken his life physically. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Hate is a heart attitude. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, that the man or woman who lusts after another person has already committed adultery in their heart. The word heart in Matthew 5, 28 is the Greek noun cardia, spelled K-A-R-D-I-A, from which we get our English word cardiac, and which in biblical terms denotes the soul or mind as the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, motives, and endeavors. So in Scripture, you'll see, especially in the New Testament, you'll see the word heart and mind used interchangeably. Okay? It's, it's, it's who we are. The heart is who you really are. And you know who you really are. You know. And in fact, you know yourself so well, you don't want other people to know you that well. I'll just speak for myself because I didn't hear enough amens in that one. I don't, know, I don't want people to know me as well as I know me. Discontentment begins in the mind. If you don't remember anything else I say, remember that. It begins here. It begins with how you and I choose to think. It begins with how you and I choose to think about our life and about the circumstances that God has providentially ordained for us. At its most fundamental level, discontentment is rooted in misplaced affections. It's really as simple as that. You're discontent because your affections are in the wrong place. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson who lived from 1620 to 1686, in his classic work titled A A Body of Divinity, said this about misplaced affections, quote, 
These as the strings of a violin are out of tune. They are the lesser wheels which are strongly carried by the will, which is the master wheel. Our affections are set on wrong objects. Our love is set on sin, our joy on the creature rather than the creator. Our affections are naturally as a sick man's appetite who desires things which are noxious and hurtful to him. He calls for wine instead of water in a fever. So we have impure lustings instead of holy longings, unquote. Discontentment is a failure on our part to consistently put into practice Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, which is to say we fail to set, we fail to fix our minds and our hearts on the things above rather than the things that are on the earth. And our affections, for better or worse, are always a matter of the heart, always. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also. So the question is, where is your treasure this morning? Where lie the affections of your heart? Perhaps a better question would be, what are your affections and treasures? Because you see, to answer the latter question is also to answer the former question. It is the what that answers the where. We got to be honest with ourselves, folks. You know where your treasures are. You know what they are. You know whether or not they're godly treasures or not. The 17th century Puritan writer William Greenhill, who lived from 1591 to 1671 in his book titled Stop Loving the World, said this, quote, If we are to stop loving the world, let us look much at the other world. There is another world. There is a world to come, and that world is a better world than this world. If we are to get our hearts off this world, which is a very necessary thing, then we must guard our hearts with all diligence. Look as attentively to your hearts as to your eyes, as to the food you eat, as to your entire life. Keep it with all diligence. Look to your affections and listen to what Greenhill says. Look to your affections and do not let them rove and wander up and down in the world, ranging here and there, unquote. But that's what we do. Anybody see the movie Up? Up is one of my favorite all-time movies. I have a story to tell around that, but not today. I don't have time. But one of the funniest things in in, in the film was like, you, you, you think the dogs are on a mission. They're focused. They're... All of a sudden, squirrel. Squirrel. You ever notice there was never a squirrel? Spoiler alert for those who haven't seen her. (laughs) But there was never a squirrel. But that's what we do. This is what Green Hill was talking about. We let our affections roll to and fro. They're always changing because we always think there's a squirrel. And there never is. There's never a squirrel. At the root of all discontentment is a heart that has lost sight of what Jesus said is the foremost commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
and though not usually considered in biblical or theological terms, discontentment is sin because it is evidence that we treasure something or someone more than we treasure Christ. Discontentment pridefully declares to him who willingly paid our sin debt by dying on the cross, sorry, Lord, but you're just not enough for me. I need more. That's really what a discontented heart is saying. The Puritan John Flavel in his book, Keeping the Heart, said this, quote, it would much conduce to the settlement of your hearts to consider that by fretting and discontentedness, you do yourselves more injury than all the afflictions you lie under could do. Your own discontentedness is that which arms your troubles with a sting. It is you who make your burden heavy by struggling under it. Could you but lie quiet under the hand of God, your condition would be much easier and sweeter than it is, unquote. It is the height of arrogance and pride for any professing believer to refer to Christ as Lord and yet somehow regard him as insufficient to satisfy them solely on the basis that our self-absorbed life ain't got that pop. Consider the audaciousness of such a self-centered mindset in light of these words from the Puritan theologian Thomas Watson, who in his book titled The Art of Divine Contentment said this, quote, In a word, a contented Christian, being sweetly captivated under the authority of the word of God, desires to be wholly at God's disposal and is willing, listen to what Watson says here, and is willing to live in that sphere and climate where God has set him, unquote. Do those words from Thomas Watson describe you this morning? Can you honestly say, as Watson said, that you are a Christian who is content to live in that sphere and climate where God has set you? It's an important question because the sin of discontentment is often the attitudinal gateway drug to other sins. Discontentment is such a destructive sin that if left unaddressed, it can and will decimate everything in its path, including your relationships with other people. It is discontentment that leads husbands and wives to engage in adulterous relationships under the mirage that they will find happiness and meaning for their lives with someone else. It is discontentment that motivates many professing believers in Christ to take on financial obligations that they could otherwise not afford. It is discontentment, the desire for that pop life that contributes to increasing numbers of Christians falling into an abyss of spiritual depression and all manner of addictions from some of which they don't recover. The 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon who has often been referred to as the Prince of Preachers, said this quote. He said, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. What Spurgeon said is not in our nature to be content. We don't have that innately. He says, contentment will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, We must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in it, unquote. 
the English writer and late theologian Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who we more commonly know as G.K. Chesterton, expressed a similar sentiment as Spurgeon when he said this, quote, true contentment is a thing as active as agriculture. And one of the things that surprised Melissa and me, speaking of agriculture, when we got here, what you, what you all have to understand who have lived here in California for a long time is that on the East Coast, what we see of California is all Lakers, it's all Hollywood, it's all downtown L.A., it's all movie stars. But it wasn't long after uh, Melissa and I uh, moved here, we went down to 126 towards Ventura. And we saw how rural California is with the citrus fields, right? The farms. You don't see that on the east. I promise you, you don't. You don't see that on the east. It's all what we see in the movies. It's the Lakers. It's the Dodgers. Speaking of which, my braids beat the Dodgers this, this year. But, <laughs> had, had, had to put that in there. But you, I'm sorry. Sorry, not sorry. But, but we, we were, yeah, be, be content that you lost. But we, we, we could hardly keep the car straight because we're looking left and right to lemon fields, strawberry fields for miles. So you understand what Chesterton is saying here when he uses an agriculture metaphor. He says, true contentment is a thing as active as agriculture. It is the power of getting out of any situation all that, that, that there is in it. That's what a farmer has to do. If you're going to harvest anything, you have to get out of any situation because sometimes some years are better than others. Some crops are better than others. Chesterton says contentment is like getting out of any situation all that there is in it. The Apostle John declares in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it's against the backdrop of that spiritual reality that I'm reminded of these words from the Puritan theologian John Flavel who said this, quote, Christ hath not freed believers in this world from the temptations and assaults of Satan. Even those that are freed from his dominion are not freed from his molestation. I believe Flavel's words to be germane to the issue of discontentment because one of the more tangible manifestations of the kind of molestation of which Flavel is speaking is that this sinful world is absolutely relentless in its incessant efforts to convince you and me that to live for Jesus Christ is to somehow miss out on the best things that this temporal world has to offer. The mainstream media, the Internet, social media, television, billboards, and even certain elements and aspects of the evangelical church are constantly beckoning us to come up with some reason, some rationale, some excuse, some subjective and changeable ethical or moral loophole by which we can compromise our biblical confession with a world that wants nothing whatsoever to do with God or with his word. You see, the truth is Christ has already given you and me everything we need in himself. Whereas the world gives us nothing that can even remotely compare with that. Listen, listen closely. A discontented Christian is a living, breathing oxymoron. I'm going to let that one marinate for a minute. A discontented Christian is a living, breathing oxymoron. 
I say that in light of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, where we're exhorted to give thanks in everything, it says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Conversely, the apostle Peter declares of Christ in 2 Peter 1, 3, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, that word everything in those two verses is the Greek adjective pas, that's P-A-S. That word translated means all, each, any, the whole, and things of all types. So in other words, the professing believer in Christ is to genuinely be thankful, literally, for all things, without exception. To be a Christian is to turn one's back to the world. And yet it is the pursuit of the pop life that invariably draws us towards the things of the world. Things we know will one day turn to dust. And away from the eternal things of God, which scripture says will never be corrupted. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. When that phrase reserved in heaven for you literally means that your inheritance has your name on it. To quote Thomas Watson again from The Art of Divine Contentment, quote, Discontentment takes the heart wholly off from God and fixes it on the present trouble so that a man's mind is not upon his prayer, but upon his cross. In his book, Contentment, Prosperity and God's Glory, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said this, quote, The wheels of a good watch will stay in constant and steady motion, even if a man sits on it or if it is dropped or thrown around. So it is with the heart of a man. If there is grace within and the wheels work rightly, grace will keep the heart steadfast. Let the conditions be as various as possible, whether tossed up or down. This way or that way, the heart will stay the same. So in a constant way, whether in prosperity or adversity, the gracious man will still respond consistently before God. If God brings illness upon him, he rejoices in God and blesses him. You will find pleasant and spiritual things coming from him even then. And if God delivers him and he comes into prosperity, there you will find that his heart still remains heavenly. It remains gracious, spiritual, and raised above created things no matter which condition he is put into, unquote. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and if you're listening to the Just Thinking podcast, you know this already. You know what verse I'm about to quote. But one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, which in the New American Standard Translation reads as follows. It says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, remember that the Lord has made the one as well as the other. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, remember that the Lord has made the one day as well as the other. 
It is my personal belief and conviction that if you can get that, that verse, if you can get the significance of that verse into your mind and heart, you will never have a bad day. Amen. Never. I'm not bragging when I say this, but I don't have bad days. My wife will attest that I don't have bad days. I don't. I do not have bad days. I do not. This verse has helped feed me in that way. Ecclesiastes 7.14. What I found here, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidetrack here, but what I found is among many professing Christians over the past two years within this whole COVID milieu is that they're afraid to read Ecclesiastes. They don't want to read Ecclesiastes. They do not. Many people will not read Ecclesiastes because there are truths in Ecclesiastes that you don't want to face. Because what I found, sadly, is, and I'm not generalizing here, but I've encountered many professing Christians during the last couple of years. One reason they sh- they're struggling to deal with the challenges that this milieu has presented them with is that they can't let go of the things that they're holding on to. And see, Ecclesiastes teaches you to do exactly the opposite. When you read Ecclesiastes, it teaches you to let go of everything because it's all temporary. But that's why a lot of people won't read Ecclesiastes because they don't want to lose anything. One thing this COVID situation has done, it really has exposed, sadly, for the worst, the theology of a lot of Christians. The theology is not right. It's not biblical. How can you, on the one hand, say, oh, well, this world is not my home. I'm a citizen of heaven. I tweeted just this morning. I said, you can't confess that this world is not your home and then struggle to give up the keys to the house. A lot of people, a lot of Christians don't want to go to heaven. What I mean by that is that they're, they want, they're holding on to this world so tightly that they just can't let go of it. Even though eventually they're going to let go of it. So no Ecclesiastes 7.14 in your Bible, I promise you. You get that verse in here and then here, you can deal with any situation with joy. With joy. The 17th century Puritan Richard Baxter said this. If everlasting joys were more in your thoughts, spiritual joys would abound more in your hearts. No wonder you are comfortless when heaven is forgotten. When Christians let fall their heavenly expectations but heighten their earthly desires, they are preparing themselves for fear and trouble. Who has met with a distressed, complaining soul where either a low expectation of heavenly blessings or too high a hope for joy on this earth is not present? Baxter closes with this. What keeps us under trouble is either we do not expect what God has promised or we expect what God has not promised. See, the cure for discontentment is gratitude. It's gratitude. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, so long as we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. J.C. Rouse said, a Christian must be content to go to heaven as a beggar, 
a poor sinner saved only by free grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. I mean, think about it, beloved. How can you, how can I, how can any professing believer in Christ be discontent knowing that Jesus willingly shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins against the holy and righteous God and thereby delivering us from an eternity in hell, which apart from that sacrifice, we rightly deserve. Consider Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39, which says, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Do you think you have a right to be discontent? If you do, I humbly encourage you to consider those rights in light of these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, which says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. See, the ungodly in that verse is you. It's me. It's me. Isn't it amazing? how easily we get offended within the church at being called a sinner. I'm a redeemed sinner. I don't know about you. I'm redeemed, but I'm still a sinner. But we've allowed worldly sentimentalism to so creep within the church that it's offensive now to even call someone a sinner. You can't even quote the Bible without almost getting into a fist fight with someone. Here's Paul. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 5, 6. This isn't Daryl 5, 6. This is Romans 5, 6, where Paul says Christ died for the ungodly. But we try to pretty it up. Well, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. We're ungodly. Apart from Christ. Reflect on that. Reflect on that reality against these words from the 17th century Puritan George Swinnock, who said this, quote, We take the size of sin too low and short and wrong when we measure it by the wrong it does to ourselves or our families or our neighbors or the nation wherein we live. Indeed, herein somewhat of its evil and mischief does appear. But to take its full length and proportion, we must consider the wrong it does to this great, this glorious, this incomparable God. Sin is incomparably malignant because the God principally injured by it is incomparably excellent. See, if we understood better, if we took into account more regularly how holy God is, we wouldn't get offended at being called a sinner, at being called ungodly. Because we're looking at ourselves against the light of his holiness, his perfection. John Flavel in his book, Christ Altogether Lovely, exhorts believers to, quote, esteem nothing lovely except as it is enjoyed in Christ or used for the sake of Christ. Love nothing for itself, Love nothing separate from Jesus Christ. In two things we all sin, Flavel says, in love of created things. We sin in the excess of our affections, loving them above the proper value of mere created things. Mm. 
we also sin in the inordinacy of our affections. That is to say, we give our love for created things a priority it should never have. Unquote. Listen. The goal of the Christian life is not to live a life that's funky. It's to live a life that's holy. Amen. The Bible speaks of a man in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 who endeavored to live a life that was funky. But he ended up saying to himself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? The writer of Hebrews exhorts us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, to pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. A few verses later in Hebrews 13, 5, we have this exhortation. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? It's one of the most important rhetorical questions in Scripture. What will man do to you? What can a man do to you? Send you to heaven. Worst case scenario. (laughs) Absent from the body, present with the Lord. The writer said we should be free from the love of money, being content with what we have. And how can you and I make sure that our character is free from the love of money or of any other worldly attractions, temptations, and enticements that might serve to foster within us a heart attitude of discontentment? Well, we can make sure of it by guarding the affections of our heart so that we don't fall into the alluring trap of pursuing the pop life. In his commentary on Hebrews 13, 5, the British expositor Matthew Henry said this, quote, he said, having treasures in heaven, we may be content with mean things here. Did you get that? He says, having our treasures in heaven, we can be content with bad things happening to us here. Those who cannot be so would not be content, though God raised their condition. So what Henry said, even if you got what you wanted, you still wouldn't be happy. Continuing with Henry's quote, Adam was in paradise, yet not contented. Some angels in heaven were not contented. But the apostle Paul, though abased and empty, had learned in every state to be content. Christians have reason to be contented with their present lot. This promise contains the sum and substance of all the promises. I will never, no, never leave thee. No, never forsake thee. In the original language, there are no less than five negatives put together to confirm that promise. The true believer shall have the gracious presence of God with him in life, at death, and forever. Henry closes with this. Men can do nothing against God, and God can make all that men do against his people to turn for their good. Unquote. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, that if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. And that word content literally means to be sufficient, to suffice, to be enough, to be satisfactory. 
So tell me, my friend, what's the matter with your life? Is the economy bringing you down? Is the mailman jerking you around? (laughs) Did he put your million-dollar check in someone else's box? Tell me, what's the matter in your world? Was it a boy when you wanted a girl? Don't you know straight hair ain't got no curl? You see, you can feel free to replace any of the scenarios that I just repeated in those lyrics with whatever it is you're discontent about this morning. And as you ponder that within your own heart, I want to close with these final words. I want to quote again Thomas Watson, who, if you haven't guessed by now, Thomas Watson is my favorite Puritan. And if you're a listener to the Just Thinking podcast, you know we love the Puritans. We love the Puritans. We quote them all the time, regularly. Please listen closely to these words from Thomas Watson as I close. This is from his book, The Art of Divine Contentment. Quote, The wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees it better for us to abound, we shall abound. If he sees it better for us to be in need, we shall be in need. Be content to be at God's disposal. God sees in his infinite wisdom the same condition is not best for all. That which is good for one may be bad for another. One season of weather will not serve all men's occasions. One needs sunshine, another rain. One condition of life will not fit every man. No more than one suit of apparel will fit everybody. Prosperity is not fit for all, nor is adversity fit for all. If one man be brought low, perhaps he can bear it better. He has a greater stock of grace, more faith and patience. He can gather grapes from thorns, pick some comfort out of the cross. Everyone cannot do this. Another man is seated in an eminent place of dignity. He is fitter for it. Perhaps it is a place which requires more wisdom, which everyone is not capable of. Perhaps he can use his estate better. He has a public heart as well as a public place. The wise God sees that condition to be bad for one, which is good for another. Hence, it is that he places men in different orbs and spheres, some higher, some lower. One man desires health. God sees that sickness is better for him. God will work spiritual health out of physical sickness by bringing the body of death into a consumption. Another man desires liberty. God sees bondage to be better for him. He will work his liberty by bondage. When his feet are bound, his heart shall be most enlarged. He closes with this. Watson closes with this. Did we believe this? That is, were we to just believe everything that he said to this point? If we would believe this, it would give a check to the sinful disputes and cavils of our hearts. What he's saying is, is if we would just believe that, that God knows what he's doing, essentially is what Watson is saying, you would cease your complaining. 
Did we believe this? It would give a check to the sinful disputes and cavils of our hearts. Shall I be discontented at that which is enacted by God's decree and ordered by his wise providence? Is this to, is this to be a child of God or a rebel? Unquote. If you're a professing Christian who is harboring this morning an attitude of discontentment in your heart, I humbly urge you to confess and repent of your sin and to plead with God to help you recognize and to appreciate the blessed reality that in Christ you have everything you will ever need to live contentedly and joyously, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Thank you all for having me this morning. I appreciate it.